0: Welcome and thank you for tuning in to the very first episode of Humble Radio. The Humble Radio podcast aims to share the stories of successful entrepreneurs from various backgrounds and industries to better understand what it really takes to make it in business and in life. Our honorary first guest is Jason T. Smith. Jason studied physiotherapy at Melbourne University and founded the Back in Motion Health Group in 1999. Over the course of 22 years, Back in Motion exploded into a nationally recognized brand across Australia and New Zealand with more than 100 practices. In 2021, Jason sold Back in Motion for over $100 million and is now focused on providing better health services to people in need, while also helping other entrepreneurs lead their own businesses to success. In this casual interview, Jason tells his story and shares some valuable advice for anyone aiming to improve their life. Thanks again for tuning into Humble Radio. Enjoy the episode. Ready to go? I'm recording. I'm ready ready if you're ready. Perfect.
1: All right, Jason, how are you going today? Good, Josiah. I mean, it's a rare sunny day in Melbourne. Yes. Who who can't be happy about that?
0: Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, Did you enjoy winter at all?
1: Yeah, there's always something to love about every season. Um, Winter felt particularly cold, though, this year yeah but you know you make the most of it you, you wear the jackets that otherwise hardly ever get used you go to the snow
0: i particularly and, like winter honestly that's one of my favorite seasons
1: yeah i like it i mean I, i'm fortunate i get to travel a couple of times a month so i was getting up to queensland pretty regularly so i get little breaks in the weather but hey it's melbourne so we uh, we're used to variety
0: that's right that's right Good. so um I want to thank you for being the first guest on the Humble Radio podcast. first guest. The very first guest. I'm your guinea pig. You're the honorary first (laughs) guinea pig. I'm the only
1: one that would say yes.
0: Yes. You get a special badge for being the first (laughs) guinea pig. Um, Yeah. So thank you for jumping on. Um, I just basically want to talk about entrepreneurship and your journey uh, with your business, which we'll get into. Um, But why don't you just tell the audience, give them a bit of context to like how we know each other to Mm. start off with.
1: How old are you, Josiah?
0: I'm now 27. I 27. just had my birthday the other day.
1: Happy birthday! Thank you. I'm 46, nearly 47. So I reckon we would have met mostly. The the key character in the story is your dad. Yep. And um, I will guess that about 20 years or so ago, so you would have been just a little fella. Uh, your dad got commissioned by us to do a logo for our startup business way back then. I didn't know your dad, uh, but somebody who knew somebody connected me with him Mm -hmm. and their design studio put together this little logo, which became the image on which we based the Back in Motion Health Group. And then really interestingly, I reckon 15 years after that, even though I had very little to do with your dad in the Interim years, mm-hmm. he ended up coming and working for us as our marketing manager, our national marketing manager. So that's how I reckon we're connected. Yep. Unless you're about to tell me a different story, that's, no, that, that's
0: that's my recollection. That's perfect. And then I'll add on to that. And then I started doing those videos for you. You did at that point in time it was like 2018.
1: Yeah, I reckon. You'd, I reckon there's a little bit of healthy nepotism at the time. Your dad was commissioning you, yep. to that come in my... and do some promo videos for the Back in Motion Health Group and. did a couple of those and
0: yeah yeah that was fun um I did a lot of video editing and filming when I was in high school Mm -hmm. so uh dad was like you've done that before you look pretty good and competent at that Jason did some videos done and just jumped on that did we pay you
1: or was that a love job
0: I think I got a little bit of pocket money (laughs) a little bit of pocket money here and there can't remember um yeah so um to get things kicked off um that's that's how we know each other um but I really want to kind of talk about you most of this podcast and most of this episode. Um, but you basically, you ran a really big business. It was a really big franchise called Back Emotion. Um, that's where my dad did the logo for you. But I want to go back in time and I want you to kind of introduce us to young Jason. Mm. So like, um, what was he like? What was hobbies? Uh, who were his friends? How did he grow up? Like, where did he grow up? Um, and share us, uh, share with us like any stories you may have experienced mm. that young Jason had, um, which shaped you as a person today. Like yeah. take us back. Okay. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I think for the most part, young Jason was just, uh, an ordinary story. Uh, I don't know if there were any really particular standout exceptions to that, but, uh, I grew up in Melbourne. Uh, my dad was a Navy man. Uh, mum was, um, a a full-time stay-at-home mum. So I think we were very fortunate in that regards. Uh, We were actually, you know, the, the most significant thing in my childhood is we came to faith in Jesus when I was about 10 years old. And a lot of people would probably think, ah, that's just a cute boyish decision, you know, something nominal that happens if you attend Sunday school too long. But actually for me, that was a really personal encounter with God. So as a little fella, really young, mm-hmm. relatively naive about the world, um, that actually would have been the single greatest defining moment that shaped my life that's now become. Uh, and we can maybe get into that, I, I don't know. but so, so that would have been very significant for me. Mm. But in terms of, um, I, I guess, some of the areas that you might be more interested in, entrepreneurially, I would never have considered myself a smart kid or a business-minded kid. In fact, on both sides of my family, all of my father's siblings and my grandparents and cousins and and true also on my mum's side, I think I was the first person to ever go to university. Really? Everybody else was either in the armed forces, the Navy, the Air Force or in blue-collar trades.
0: So does that mean um, was your family quite strict and orderly?
1: Yeah, dad. Dad was a uh, a man of discipline, no doubt. Um, and I, you know, I just think, you know, in terms of academics and commerciality, there it just it just wasn't in the DNA of our family. So mm. I grew up not particularly with any affinity for that stuff. Um, so I'm as surprised as anybody else that this is now my story. Having spent, you know, the the bulk of my adult life in the business world. Mm. But when I do look back at young Jason, it's interesting because there's some funny stories where there was obviously an intuition in me that maybe I didn't recognize at the time. And mm. it's only in hindsight, you can see there was, there was a little bit of um, entrepreneurial spirit bubbling away. Like one day, yeah. w- one day dad cut the big pine tree down in the front yard of the house. Cause mm. it was tearing up the concrete driveway and it was about September, like it is today, and uh, I was looking at this thing because it was my job to clean up all the branches and put them in the trailer, and I was looking at this thing thinking, Christmas isn't that far away, and this is really just a 100 little Christmas trees. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't I just put up a little sign and sell them on the side of the road, and instead of having to fill the trailer, I can fill my wallet. And sure enough, I would have sold 10 or 15 of these things, and I walked around the block. and How much you sell them for? Oh, probably a couple of dollars, but yeah. you know, to me as a, as a young... As a young boy, that would have been big dollars. It's
0: like a lemonade stand, but for exactly. pine trees for yeah. Christmas. Of
1: course, none of these trees would have made it to Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they were all sympathy sales. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, there was there was something in me that saw the opportunity. I remember also, um, long before I had my first part-time job, I'd get Dad's lawn mower and a full can of petrol, and I'd just walk the streets, knocking on people's doors for 4 and $5, willing to mow their lawns, which was great. Eventually even got my next door neighbour, who was a year or so younger than me, to join me and I'd do the sales and she'd mow the lawns and I'd get the $5 and she'd get two of those $5 and it was a great little... um,
0: First employee. Yeah, great little caper until her
1: mum learned of it and shut it all down. So even unions... Unions are around even in childhood, mate. Wow. (laughs) They, so, get, they get
0: them young. Yeah.
1: So, you know, there's no doubt I've had um, some of those little kind of fun experiences that mm. clearly taught me a few lessons around leadership and life and the basics of money. And who knows? May, maybe that's all kind of been instrumental in the in the place I ended up. But mm. uh, overall, good childhood, loving parents, very church-centric, very God-centric, mm. um, Struggled a little at school in terms of, uh, you know, I just I just wasn't naturally academic, but I was so determined to do well. My work ethic trumped my my smarts. So where I wasn't brilliant, I would just work as hard as I possibly could. So, mm. you know, without without being too silly about it, I was probably the hardest working kid in the class. Mm. Um, And we're in a school system, actually, where you didn't have a classroom teacher that taught you all the same curriculum. You actually worked an American curriculum, which was a self-paced books system. So in grade five, I was already doing year seven maths and year seven science because you could work at your own pace. What what was that system called? P-A-C-E. Okay. PACE. I don't know what it stood for some, some sort of accelerated learning program. Right. Um, and the school, you know, it it was probably pretty novel to have it here in Australia, but it was a small private school and that's what they did. So, you know, I was able to get ahead in my studies, which means by the time I eventually landed in a state school doing secondary years and then VCE, I probably had a better grounding in some of the basics and fundamentals than, than my peers, but not because I was super smart, just because I'd worked hard.
0: Do you find that's a common trait? Like if you know other entrepreneurs or if you've met other people with similar traits to you, do you think that's kind of like a precursor to being successful in business?
1: I don't think being, I don't think not being smart is a precursor, Uh, but the work ethic is. I mean, this, this t-shirt everyone wants to buy and wear that says work smarter, not harder. Nah, that's, that's ridiculous. Mm. Work smarter and harder. Yeah. I mean you can't substitute hard work. It's you know, in any entrepreneurial initiative, whatever it might be, in any in any creative, courageous expression, you're gonna have to swim upstream, fight the odds, do something different. It's gonna take an enormous amount of effort. Mm. And so I think lazy people don't don't go there. They just don't even start it.
0: Even if they're smart.
1: Even if they're smart. They'll, yeah. they'll just find other ways to make money, but they won't start organisations. They won't launch mm. brands. They won't particularly be controversial or innovative or different. They're smart, but like, as in they're intelligent, but they're not necessarily built with that courage to have a go in a way that requires that enormous work product, that mm. work effort.
0: Do you think you were born with that or did you kind of develop that over time or did you kind of learn that from
1: someone? Oh, it's probably a combination of all those things. I don't know what I was born with because it's hard to make any assessment of that at the time. Mm. I mean, my dad is an exceptionally hard worker, um, not commercially minded. And like I said, was in the armed forces and then did his trade as a fitter and turner and has worked really hard all his life. So there's no doubt there's there's an example of, of, of high work ethic or um, just discipline in, in his example to me. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I, I would imagine there's an element of my, you know, it's, it's proportionate to your hunger. So how determined are you to achieve something? If that's, for whatever reason, high, then I think there's a natural... Um, bending toward well it's gonna take work mm. it's gonna take effort
0: what, what i'm trying to mainly get at did something happen in your in your past where maybe and you, like if it did or didn't if you want to keep it private that's fine but like did something happen in particular where it gave you that drive that determination that you're talking about or did you just always have it
1: um i haven't had any major formative experience as a young fella like mm. some colossal failure or tragedy or something that would have inclined me to necessarily have this extraordinary work ethic mm. i i i don't think that that exists but but again if i go back to that most defining moment of my life where i felt i had a personal, personal encounter with god one, one of the mm. things that happened in that was it was the it was the mid-1980s. I was ten years of age. I was watching the cartoon connections on a Saturday morning. Everyone else was in bed asleep. I'm ten years old. And those World Vision ads came on.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if anybody remembers those, they're pretty cliche now. But at the time I think they were quite confronting in their in their approach. And you know, you, you see these young Ethiopian kids, distended bellies and mm-hmm. You know, their eye sockets sunken, full of flies and frail limbs. They could barely walk. They'd stagger around in the dirt before collapsing into a cloud of dust. And Mm. I just remember as a little boy thinking, this is horrific. You know, there's no one to care for them. And I felt like the compassion of God filled me. And really from that moment, I was determined to become a, a doctor or a physio or a nurse, as it happens, I became a physio, but Mm. anyone in the medical profession to become a medical missionary, to go overseas and do something about that, that I'd seen on TV. And so maybe whilst it wasn't a tragedy, it was this, it was this dream, this compulsion that I wanted to be meaningful in my work and I wanted to do something medical. And I knew that I wasn't just naturally gifted in academics. Mm So I was going to have to compensate for that with hard work. Right. So I would put in twice the hours of anybody else. I would just keep pushing and pushing and pushing, not because volume gets you there, but it was the only thing I could rely on. It was the only thing I could control.
2: Right.
1: And so I would imagine as you ask the question, and I think about that, that yes, my work ethic probably got seeded in some element Mm -hmm. from that dream. Right. Yeah.
0: Right. Very interesting. Mm. Yeah. Um, So you, you would consider yourself quite a like compassionate person. And when you saw there was like suffering in the world, that was your flame to kind of like, I got to do something about this. And then because you had that upbringing with your, you know, with your dad's hard work ethic that kind of combined, and then you had that clear vision and you ended up, you ended up studying and becoming a physician Mm -hmm. full time.
1: Physio, physio, sorry, physio. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way you put it together and summarise it, I I can. Is that correct? I can agree with that. Okay. It's it's not how I always reflect on the sequence of events, but definitely, definitely, there's those converging forces at work. Um, Interesting. And yeah, and uh, you know, I, I think there's there's lots to love about having a reason to live. A reason to die, you know, having purpose. We, mm. the world, talks about that all the time. It's very popular culture now to think about your why, mm. and and have um, you know a social cause and all of these things. I mean, none of that was the narrative at the time when I was young, mm. and I wouldn't have thought I was necessarily an extremely compassionate person. But what I did have was a sense that. God you are going to use me in that context of medical support to the disadvantaged communities, the poorest of the poor, the developing world and mm-hmm. I'm not going to get there by accident I'm gonna to have to get there on purpose and if I have to work hard to chip away at my opportunities then let's get on with it already.
0: She had a calling I, I
1: think so yeah yeah, yeah I yeah. do And you know you ask any of my teachers back then, or family members who would have asked that cliche question, What do you want to be, Jace, when you grow up? I think you'd put them all under a heat lamp at three o'clock in the morning today and they'd all be able to, under duress, give you the same answer. Uh, Jace was always interested in becoming a medical missionary. So it's obviously been a big part of the identity that I formed in those young years, mm. even if I didn't have all the words for it then yeah. and didn't know quite how it was going to work out. And clearly the story has, um, taken a, a few twists and turns since then, but yeah.
0: Yeah. As it does. Mm. Um, so yeah, let's talk about, um, your, your physio, mm-hmm. uh, journey. So you became a physio, you graduated, uh, where did you graduate from?
1: uh, Ro- uh Melbourne university. Okay. So yep. Good Brilliant. school.
0: Um, and did you go work for someone or open up your own business immediately?
1: Yeah, I, um, so I got married actually within months of graduating. Paulina, my wife, she, uh, went on to become an intensive care nurse. So we actually knew each other way back at school in grade five and six, didn't date, hardly spoke, but in uni we connected again, dated, waited till we both graduated. So we graduated in the December, got married in the January. Right. And started jobs at the Royal Melbourne Hospital together as our graduate roles. And that was mostly because we couldn't find the right overseas opportunity at the time. And we thought, well, we'll just get some experience. We'll, we'll, we'll go through the motions. Uh, I didn't see myself having a career in public health, but it was a, it was a starting point. For the most part, absolutely hated it. Mm. Um, it's a very reactive sickness model. Uh, If you think of healthcare in a conceptual sense and Mm. not to bore you, but, you know, I felt that was a really counterproductive approach to, uh, you know, enabling people into optimal health. So Mm. I I did my rounds. I um, stayed there for about 18 months and then, yeah, I worked for another guy. I actually, so we often in the industry call it crossing to the dark side when you move into private practice. So I took a role as an associate physio in someone else's practice. And again, pretty miserable experience overall, but uh, I would say I needed to have it as I look back because it was one of those shaping moments that defined for me if I was ever to run my own practice, this is everything I wouldn't want to do. Mm -hmm. So sometimes learning what not to do Is just as important as seeing the exemplar of what you would love to do. Right. And so, you know, this guy had been uh, owner of his own practice for 10 years as his first employee ever. Um, So just get that in your head. So for 10 years, it's been him and him only. So Mm -hmm. there's been little growth. Uh, everything has to be done his way. Every patient that walked through the door recognised the owner as the only treating practitioner. He had built brand around self. Mm-hmm. He's a very good clinician, so that was, a, that was a credit to him, but terrible businessman really in retrospect because he never leveraged himself past that point. And here I was, as with you today, guinea pig for him, first-time employee, and he just did everything wrong. So I didn't last more than about a year in that role okay, and but you learned a lot oh, I learned heaps yeah. heaps of what not to do, yeah, um and I mean that respectfully. Um, I still see uh, this guy mark, he's a good guy, um, and he did teach me a lot, but um, mostly what I learned from that experience is this is um this is not what I would want to do,
0: so you thought you could improve it, and then
1: yeah, and I don't think it was it, it, it wasn't um arrogance that I can do it better, it was that if I'm going to do this, yeah. I have to try to do it differently. Yeah. Because if all of my future associates feel the way I do in this place, it's never going to work. It's never yeah. going to stick. Yeah. It's not that I thought I could do it better. It's that I needed to do it better.
0: Yeah, you saw a need. I
1: have I have to be better than this or there's yeah. no use ever doing it. Right. Um, because there's just no stickability.
0: Yep. Yep. So enter back in motion or is there some more? Yeah, no,
1: pretty well, pretty well into back in motion. But it wasn't like I had this big entrepreneurial seizure like uh, you often read about. And, and and I went from there into this blueprint of a, of a perfectly, um, you know, executable plan yeah. that was going to see a national brand and a scaled business. It wasn't like that at all. I left there, um, worked somewhere else part-time, also... Um, a, a pretty overall disappointing experience. And I'm starting to think, you know what? I just got to get overseas, work amongst these um, community projects that Paulina and I had talked so much about, wanting to be involved in, become this medical missionary. That That's where my heart was. Mm. Uh, until that opportunity properly presents, I'll just treat a few friends and family at home. I'll look after them in the carport. Mm. I've, I've got a, my best man, At my wedding was a carpenter so he helped just wall up a few um, partitions clad the walls it was very basic but I thought you know I'll just I'll just do that as a bit of a holdover strategy and within a year I'm sure I'll be overseas and so your dad wasn't on the scene we didn't have a logo in fact I don't even think I had an internet connection I just got a clip art cd stolen image off that got it you know, um, color bonded onto a sign, I hung it from the carport at home and we were in business baby and it was a very humble start. So there was no big dream for becoming a, uh, you know, a franchised physio network. It was just Jace getting a little bit of pocket money together because working for others clearly had been a disappointing experience.
0: And that was, you still had the dream of going overseas as a physio. Correct. That was the ultimate goal. Yep. Interesting. Okay. So, yeah, you were thinking maybe you'd have the business up and running for maybe a year or two to get some money together and then off you go? The
1: le- less was best. Yeah. So the shorter I was running this, the happier I would be. I wasn't investing money into this. Mm-hmm. I wasn't putting a whole lot of effort. It was just a interim strategy. Paulina was finishing some of her studies at, at um, as a postgraduate. We didn't have kids. We were still, you know, relatively untied down, and it was like, as soon as the invitation comes, we're out of there.
0: How old were you at this oh, point? Oh,
1: twenty-three. Twenty-three. Okay. Yeah, wow. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. pretty young. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Wow. To start your own physio.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I got a phone call from the Peak Body for physiotherapists, yeah. the Australian Physio Physio Association, with whom I've had now a couple of decades of incredibly positive constructive relationship with but at the time i got a phone call saying we do not support you running your own practice we don't endorse you uh we think you're way too young we would rather you don't do it you can't possibly have enough experience to be out there doing this um so yeah it 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 wasn't it wasn't like i was well supported Hmm.
0: Hmm. very interesting and then what do you know now it's like uh massive franchise around australia and new zealand correct yeah there you go yeah proven wrong so sometimes you've got to be told you can't exactly (laughs) exactly wow fascinating so um so you started your your business back in motion uh you didn't really want to continue it you just like this is just for you know a cash grab so i can go overseas what happened uh to kind of change your path from wanting to go overseas to now, okay, we're going to go full on this business, you know, grow this. What what happened there?
1: Yeah, there was no quick transition, to be honest. Um, we've been in business now 22 years. Yeah. And actually there's not a month that would go by, not necessarily every day, but there's not a month that would go by where I still don't wish I was overseas and part of those projects. So right. it's not like I ever let that dream go or um thought it was a uh you know an evaporated ideal it was it's it's still very much part of the psyche of our family Mm -hmm. and in fact i think a bedrock of our business the culture of the people we've attracted into our network but i guess from that point so what happened what happened was um we were an accidental success things happened quicker quicker than they ought to have Hmm. Uh, within about three months i was treating my first patients at about five o'clock in the morning uh, and seeing my last patient at about eleven o'clock at night oh wow and we were doing this five and a half maybe six days a week and all from this little carport so i wasn't working anywhere else now Uh, i had no receptionist I had no toilet facilities for patients. I had no waiting room. I had a single consultation suite. It had really basic equipment, secondhand ultrasound, an old portable massage bed., yeah. I didn't have a computer out there. Um, and you know people would literally park in the driveway and the street. and if it was raining, uh, I would have to walk out to them with an umbrella to usher them in because there was no standing room. Right. I mean, this was really basic, but yeah. we, we had so many patients coming and uh, it was laughable really. But how, how, did, how did that happen? Like, do you know? Uh, the yeah, A couple, couple of, couple of um, big referral sources. So okay. we were pretty connected at church um, and we attend a large church. And so I think we had a lot of friends and family to whom word had got out. Yeah. Uh, i actually promoted myself uh, and and this this was a risky move but i promoted myself to a number of orthopedic surgeons okay. so i got a lot of referrals for post-operative care and rehab and i to this day think they could not have known to whom they were sending these people right <laughs> they surely didn't they no surely Maps, didn't like. say, you know, I'm, uh, you know, Mrs. Jones, you're you're going to go and see Jason in his garage at home. But nonetheless, yeah. um, I got a steady stream from there, and uh, and you know, I think this is a principle of good business, word of mouth. You know, healthy things grow yeah. if you do a good job. People tell friends and. Um, it doesn't take long for that momentum to build. And, and, yeah. and I was only on my own, so I can fill a day of patients pretty quickly. But yeah. And Paulina had a lot of nursing friends. And so the reason I'd often have these 5 a.m. and 11 p.m. appointments is because a lot of her colleagues were either coming off night shifts or going on day shifts, right. and nurses back is a real thing. Uh, and yeah. so I was treating these these uh, friends and colleagues of paulina so the momentum built pretty quickly and paulina would have come to me i reckon at about the three or four month f- uh, stage of this startup little shack in uh, in scores being said hey jace this is ridiculous mm-hmm. um i'm trying to sleep dur- this is paulina talking i'm trying to sleep during the day because she's been on night shift and you've got people coming up and down the driveway all day being treated. Mm. Like this is this is our home. This is not this is this is not a place for, for this practice. Either shut it down or do it properly. Mm. I, I just so distinctly remember her words, yep. shut it down or do it properly. Mm. Can't can't be half pregnant. Don't stand in the middle. Mm-hmm. And so we still ha- saw no light at the end of the tunnel with regards to a opportunity to go overseas. We were knocking on a lot of doors. No green lights were, were turning up. So we took what I still to this day think was one of our biggest risks ever. And it felt like it at the time. We signed a lease on a nearby medical premises for $12,000 a year. And I was going to shift this practice into the medical rooms. And I I remember for about two or three weeks looking at, had the paperwork on my desk at home. And I just remember thinking, $12,000.
2: Yeah.
1: Whoa. Yeah. That is so much money. And I'm committed then for a year. Right. Um, but that's what we did. We ended up signing that lease, moved into medical premises. Then I took on another physio as an employee within the end of that first year, we were really on our way, to be honest, yeah. like the momentum was just starting to build. So I think within two years, we probably had four physios working. We were one of the largest practices in the area. Wow. Uh, um, just within two years. Yeah. Wow. yeah it, it really accelerated. Yeah. Um, yeah and quite um you know and and that sounds fantastic to the casual listener possibly but to me it was it was still um it was like being in a prison without bars. I didn't enjoy it. Really? No, I'm getting trapped into this business. Now I've got staff. I've got to look after them. Hmm. You know, I'm, I'm now only 25 years of age. I call it my quarter-life crisis, <laughs> seriously, because I, I would go home, you know, grateful that the business was self-sustaining now and um, clearly had its momentum, but just completely disillusioned about the dream to travel and and work in the developing world feeling like God had passed me by obviously I, I don't qualify for his 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 work thinking now i'm trapped in a business i don't know how to run business mm. i'm a physio nobody's taught me anything about the economics the marketing the hr the, the you know the leadership pressure was pretty overwhelming mm. i mean I, I, they weren't, they were my most unhappy years of my life. Wow. Wow. And Paulina would say to you, it was tough on her. She was working 12 hour shifts at the hospital in the intensive care unit. She was then rushing to the practice, helping me run the business. Mm. So she was working flat out. You know, our friends were off having parties and traveling the world and, uh, buying houses or, you know, just seemingly living the good life. And I don't think FOMO was a word back then, but we, we sure felt like we were missing out. Wow. And, um, and mostly that God had, you know, passed us by. So Mm. that's a pretty miserable place to be in.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and so, yeah, that's my quarter life crisis.
0: So it, it really wasn't, it wasn't enjoyable it wasn't like yes, like my business is succeeding. Yeah. We're getting customers; they're coming in the yeah. door. There's like there's like a prison. I want out. Like, but it, I've got too many customers
1: to be responsible for. Is that yeah. what it was like? Yeah, I mean, remember, I didn't want to be in business. It wasn't your goal. I didn't have yeah. business experience. I didn't have family who understood business. Yeah, with the exception of Paulina's dad, actually, Paulina's dad, engineer by profession um, trained and raised in Chile and then lived in Brazil and immigrated to Australia in his sort of mid adulthood. Um, he had an entrepreneurial view of the world. Mm -hmm. He, he, he could, he could create opportunities. Um, but you know, I I met him later in life and I'm still forming a connection with him as my new father-in-law. So really for the most part, business is evil. Mm. You know, business, business is dirty. Business isn't, isn't in my, my view of the world. Mm. Um, and so to be now in a business at 25 years of age, feeling untrained, ill-equipped, and more importantly, it violates a lot of what I thought my values and principles were. Mm. Um, and certainly just my view of where I was heading, I felt like failure.
0: Mm. Wow.
1: So, so that would be the, yeah, the real low ebb in The story for me, hmm. and in fact, you know, I talk about that really defining moment as a 10 year old. My second most profound defining moment occurs in the belly of the misery, right? Of that period when you're 25, yeah, 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 exactly. Wow! So, you know, that's sometimes good things come out of low points, but yeah, you know.
0: No, that's interesting. Did you have a um a mentor at any point, or late, maybe later
1: on in the business that helped you with all that, or do you kind of just find your own way? I I feel I count myself really fortunate, and I don't think it's because I'm anybody special, but I have been blessed to have had a mentor from the age of fifteen, all the way through currently to today. Wow! Not the same person, but I'm I've never been without somebody who I could debrief with. Yeah. Um. During those years of maybe 15 to 20, uh, the mentor was just like a big brother. Mm -hmm. Um, then during the years of say 20 to 25, this period that we've just covered Mm -hmm. of the story, um, I had mentors, but they weren't very commercially minded. They were more spiritually minded. Right. So I didn't feel like I had anybody, who was really investing into me a healthy perspective of business. And because again, my family didn't have experience in that space, mm. they they weren't contributing in that way either. Right. So that that would have that would have added to this low ebb. Mm. I had a very distorted view of the world. And um and I didn't have good mentors who were speaking into that aspect of my life. Yeah. But as it would happen, because desperate people do desperate things, in that really Bad space I found myself in, ironically a growing and profitable business, but just not enjoying it. Mm. Uh, And I describe it as being a crisis point. I did seek out at that point a mentor who has been with me the entire journey ever since, and has been singularly, uh, you know, uh, outside of my wife and and you know, my spirituality, he would have singularly had the greatest amount of influence over my journey. Mm -hmm. to this point.
0: So you, you would definitely recommend to any entrepreneur then to get a mentor to really like, if they really want to be successful, that it's like an essential part.
1: Yeah. So mentorship means different things to different people. You know, we, we interchange the word mentor with coach and friend and consultant and advisor and priest you know mm. all, all these other words I, I, I would say mentorship at its most basic cellular level is somebody who is an avid encourager who brings 2 pounds of love for every pound of discipline right but they're also authentic and they're going to hold you to account so this is this is a really crucial relationship mm. and whether that comes in the form of a parent or a spouse, or a business partner, or a formal mentor, each to their own, but that role needs to be played by somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, in the corporate world, we have boards for a reason, to bring governance, to bring strategy, to bring accountability. In the entrepreneurial space, often you're starting it by yourself, um, with you know limited resources, you're a cowboy by nature. And you think, you know, the last thing I want to do is report into somebody. And so we, we intuitively don't always reach for mentors. But, yeah, I would say even though it can take on different forms, the idea of mentorship in my life has been incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful.
0: Someone to stay accountable to.
1: Yeah, but not just – so there's that. There's the accountability, but but you need someone in your corner. Yeah. Someone who's more, in, more interested in you than your brand – your business right that that, that's really what you need because it's very lonely at the top yeah and when you're employing staff and borrowing money from banks and building customer lists you're you're actually serving all these people you you know people think oh you're the owner you're the boss actually i work for my patients i work for my staff i work for the bank you know like um so who's looking after me my staff don't come to work and say jace how are you doing My patients don't book an appointment, pay a lot of money for physio and and inquire after my goodwill. Mm. So who's looking after me? So this is where mentorship, you know, if you've got the right person, they're invested into you, the man, you, the woman. And that means, yes, they're going to hold you account at times. It means on other occasions, they're just going to love you, hold you, hug you, uh, you know, metaphorically speaking, because that's what you need. And so they've got to be a They've got to be committed to the person. Yeah. And and often, I love the 360 degree model of mentorship, which is you've got to be one and you've got to want one. So you want a a father or mother mentor, you know, a parental influence, someone who's been there, done that a decade or two ahead of you in experience. Then you, you want to be a mentor. You want to be investing into somebody else. Think of it as, you know, um, an up and coming emerging leader that you can, that you can be that exemplar too. And, and then you want sibling mentors. You want people who are like in the thick of it, right in there, doing what you're doing. Mm. Some days you're helping them. Other days they're helping you. They're running mates, they're sparring partners. They can relate. They're, mm. they're like another frog in the pot with you. Um, and so if you think about it, then you've got, and, and you can use the word mentor, but what whatever description people apply, you've got people in all four quadrants. I think that's a good model.
0: Brilliant. No, that's really insightful. Um, so you're, you're, let's go back to like, you know, the journey of the business. Um, you're now, where are we up to? You're now- um, 25. 25. Chewing sand. Yep. Having a quarter life crisis. There we go. So you're at the lowest point, in your words, at, in your life. Yep. Um, what turned it around for you? What happened? I ran away.
1: Like, literally. I, um, Paulina and I had often talked about going around Australia. It looked like it was never going to happen now that we were trapped in a business. So we decided to just be reckless and make it happen. So I flew a physio from New Zealand who wanted a job with me. Uh, in a couple of months early, Mm -hmm. no sooner had he landed, been trained and inducted. I gave him the great news. I was going to make him acting principal. Uh, I wrote a 12 page procedures manual, which incidentally becomes the precursor a few years later for a franchise system. But at the moment that was not in my mind's imagination. Mm -hmm. Um, gave a mobile phone number, bought a laptop, bought a combi van, shaved my head And went around Australia. Oh wow! (laughs) And uh, we took off for what we thought would be um, about three or so months, Mm -hmm. and pretty well stayed out that whole time. And uh, I said to them, unless the business is on fire, burnt to the ground, or you know, there's another crisis of that that level, uh, I really don't want to hear from you. Wow! And um, my mission was to rediscover my purpose try and find which way is up in this topsy-turvy life I I now found myself in, um, rediscover God, uh, invest into my marriage. We'd only been married a couple of years. Hmm. uh, And it was was a good decision in hindsight, even though it felt like we would be coming back to nothing. I didn't think the business would endure it. Hmm. You know, what small business in its third year of trade Mm. can cope without the owner founder present who normally subsidizes his time for money. How's this business going to afford to not have me there? Mm. Um, so I expected it to implode, uh, long story short, um, it grew, it continued to grow as or faster than the first few years. Every time we would put the credit card into the service station to fill up the combi van, I'm thinking any moment this thing is going to bounce and we're going to have to go home and get real jobs. Uh, And all the way around, our bank balances just kept growing. And we're thinking, wow, this isn't at all how I expected it to be. (laughs) Um, Hardly got a phone call and, um, and had some really important conversations with God as we traveled around Australia. That's brilliant. Yeah, and and probably the, you know, I talk about this second defining moment. It would have been walking along the beach up in Darwin. We'd just come out of Kakadu. There was a big electrical storm brewing on the horizon. Paulina and I just enjoying a twilight walk. We weren't really talking to each other, but I was consumed with the thoughts of how can I be stuck here in Australia when I should be overseas working amongst the poorest of the poor? Why am I in this business? Having a real whinge session, really, um, but but it was just deep thoughts, and I felt like God say to me, "Okay, enough already, Jace. If that's what you really want to do, you know, stop the complaining. How about we just go home, pack your suitcase, and I'll make a way for it." And I thought, "Yes, I've convinced God to let me back on the team. That's how it felt." Hmm. And there was like a momentary pause as I enjoyed my victory. And then I felt like God continued the conversation and said, or, so you can go home, pack your suitcase, go overseas, Mm -hmm. or, or what you could do if you're smart is you could go home, you could learn the business of physiotherapy rather than be this accidental success You could grow an ethically profitable business, scale it right across the country, build an economic engine that then doesn't just send you overseas, but might send 10 others or 100 others. Maybe you could invest into thousands of people over the rest of your life to do good in the developing world, rather than just you being dependent on donations from others. And he just smashed my paradigms instantly Mm. it was like a switch flicked and I went from hating my life or hating the circumstances hating the fact that I felt trapped and in a a dead-end opportunity to feeling the most grateful and the most passionate and all of a sudden my my eyes popping at the notion that wow we're we're onto a business concept because it's growing without me imagine if I scaled it like this Mm. I just couldn't argue with God's maths and literally said to Paulina, we've got to go home. And so we drove back down through the center. Paulina did a lot of the driving. Uh, I filled an exercise book, about 80 pages of notes, like the ramblings of a madman really. But I just felt like God was downloading to me all these ideas and possibilities. By the time we got back to Melbourne, we were ready to invest every cent, beg, borrow, not steal, but we were prepared to do whatever it took practically mm. to get this business from this startup in a medical center to a franchisable, replicable proof of concept. And um, and that's why I say second most defining moment. And even though there's lots of moments between then and now, Mm. where I'm like, oh, I'm not really a businessman. This isn't what I'm built for. I'd much rather be overseas working as a missionary. Mm. Uh, I can't deny that God called us. He framed it for his purposes. It's part of the the plan, even if it wasn't my plan. And it's been my motivation ever since. Mm. And we might get there today, but, you know, the story keeps taking some interesting developments. And Mm. even as recently as last year, you know, things have shifted again that just keeps reminding me his hand is on this.
0: Yeah, beautiful. So there was definitely like you saw the higher purpose and the vision
1: yeah. quite
0: early on, and that gave you the courage to kind of like go back and tackle it head on.
1: That's it. I was prepared to lose everything in trying for this now, wow. whereas before that I was very conservative, playing it safe, trying to save money, not spend money. You know, I, I, I didn't have the commercial appetite for risk, whereas I came back and my risk profile just pivoted on a dime. Mm, mm. All of a sudden I saw this is actually part of God's intentions for our life. Mm. Not that it can't fail. I can still be foolish and blow it up. I don't want to do that. But I'm prepared to risk for his purposes now a lot more than ever before.
0: He showed you the potential. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe let's fast forward a bit. You you go back, um, you know, you, you go full on to this back in motion physio business. Yep. You start getting more employees. Um, maybe you like when do you start uh, opening up other practitioners? Like is is it officially a franchise there? Was that the plan for No,
1: nah, no. We came back. We relocated out of that little medical center into our first purpose built, right. you know, bespoke center. Um, we invested about. which isn't a lot of money today for, for a business. But back then that was, that was, that was a lot. Mm. I mean, a quarter of a million bucks was. I still think that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, that was a state of the art physiotherapy practice Mm. from start to finish. We would have run that practice five years as a single owner with a team around me as a, as a real proof of concept. Mm. And then in the two or three years after that, we um, pseudo-franchised. And by that, I mean, I went and bought some other practices uh, that were struggling. And I put employees in those practices and gave them some ownership. Mm -hmm. We branded them the same. We had very primitive legal documentation to protect the trademark. uh, But we didn't have a lot of systems or know-how yet, but but it almost cost them nothing. Mm. I almost gifted them, you know, for a very small investment, they were becoming partners in these other practices because I wanted to see, did we fluke it or is this replicable? Mm. And so those three practices grew very quickly, were able to turn them around and get growth. Then we did another three. So we now had six or seven of these things in total. And I thought, yeah, no, this is absolutely a model that you we have You found a formula. Scale. Yeah, yeah, you found it. Because, you know, in any business, you've you got to prototype yeah. your ideas. Yeah. Once you've prototyped them, you've then obviously got to, uh, you, you, you've got to... Um, Scale in moderate moderate or modest terms. Testing, experimenting. and and then you've got to consolidate those learnings Mm -hmm. before you keep growing. You can't just have continuous growth. Right. Um, And and then it's almost like you have to repeat that cycle in stages. And so we we would have done six before I dropped the F-bomb, and the F-bomb is franchising. And that's how – it was a dirty word, mate. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean – You know, people understand you can flip burgers in a franchise, but do they they really want you to do physio and healthcare as a franchise? It
0: wasn't very uh, common in that industry, I bet. No,
1: it is now. Yeah. Yeah, right across healthcare. I mean, think about every vet, um, optometrist, radiologist, GP centres. I've even got orthopedic surgeons who have been franchising. Uh, dentists. So, you know, franchising today is commonplace in healthcare, but 20 years ago,
3: yeah.
1: um, not so much and definitely not in physio, yeah. which is a real hands-on tactile service modality. So, um, we were a little quiet about it at first. We were franchising actually long before we went public it as being a franchise. We just called it a network.
0: I thought for a second you went public as in like ASX. Like... Oh,
1: no, 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 no,
0: no, no. <laughs> it was always for a private company.
1: Uh, it's it's ASX listed now.
0: Oh, okay, right. Yeah, but right. That,
1: that that's only in the last year. But um, yeah. we'll no, no, I meant public as in um, overtly right. communicating it as a, as a franchise. We just called it a, a network. You know, they're part of the network. Okay. Um, but really, it, it was a bona fides franchise.
0: Interesting. So, um... What would you say? Like, could you break down the formula a little bit? Like, just generally, not not super specific to a physio, but like, what was this formula? Was it like, like the branding, the customer service? Like, what yeah. did you have? What was your secret sauce?
1: There's, I mean, br- branding is always an important part of any business and and a franchise. But the th- thing people don't realize is branding comes much later. Mm-hmm you might have a brand at the very beginning, but it's not worth anything. Nobody knows it. There's no recognition. There's no penetration. There's no saturation of that idea. The brand doesn't carry with it any promise or any sense of credibility. It's a trademark, but not a love mark, right? People don't love it yet. So why would they bother buying a franchise just because you've got a brand, you know, it's, a, it's an emerging at best brand. So, okay, so if it's not the brand in the beginning, what is it? For us, it was definitely the systems. So we had um, a lot of know-how that could give a, a clinician who's not trained in business, the ability to launch a practice from greenfield to maturity, everything from how to operate, From the beginning of the day to the end of the day, we we had templates and tools and um, recruitment, um, you know, documentation to employ staff. We had our own technology that we were building. Like there were a lot of systems that meant they could just do what they loved, which was treat patients. Mm -hmm. And we could take all the necessary evil out of running the business for them, all the administration and the management. We could make that so much simpler. I think in the early days that was the big appeal.
2: Hmm.
1: I think um, the camaraderie, the culture, the community that we were building was pretty attractive to them because physios, like most uh, healthcare practitioners, they're very competitive. They're very um, they, they, they don't share information. They they they're very uh, scarce in their view of the world, and they think everybody's out to get their patient. So we were creating an environment where they could actually have case conferences and professional development and we could talk about how to grow their business. We brought business coaches in to help them and all of that, I think, was was appealing to them. Uh, And then we also had a um, a few interesting little hooks in the community. So we were sponsoring sport. We were offering free initial assessments, which was pretty controversial at the time, but but that was we were pretty aggressive with our marketing, mm. and that just meant we were getting more interest, more referrals, and therefore faster growth, faster than they could get on their own because we were pooling our resources. So you know, there's a few things in the show bag that I thought would have been more attractive to them than the brand. Ten years on, the brand would have been one of the one of the um, appealing aspects because mm. we had their notoriety and credibility, and we had national um, representation, but in the early days, you've got to give tangible value. Mm
0: Yeah. So you had a, so yeah, not, not including the brand until later on, you had a, an attractive system that kind of took away a lot of the pain points for these um, physios that had their own practices and you also kind of like brought them into a bigger, like family of, you know, collaborative physios that are all working for a common vision. Is that kind of like, was that the thing that really got people in?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, they, they swallowed the pill. Yeah. They, they believed in where we were heading, you know, in any startup business franchise or otherwise, you don't have a lot of runs on the board in those early years. Mm. And so really it's how you tell the story of where you're going. Yeah. And so I think those that first tranche of um, early franchisees, that, that kind of cohort that came on board and around me, um, they were visionary in their own sense because they saw what I was trying to do. They were prepared to take some risks. They believed that the industry needed to be shaken up and wanted to be part of it, so um, whilst there's those tangible things, systems and some marketing and other things we just touched on, I, I think you're right. I think for those early adopters, they were also believing in the intangible. And that is that, man, if Jace is right, if we actually pull this off 10 years from now, having got in at the ground level, we'll be part of something big. And I was talking a big game. I mean,
0: of course you have to, the, yeah. yeah. The face of the brand, like, that's right. you know, that's yeah. right. Very interesting. Um, Did you want to go get a quick coffee and we'll continue this conversation? Let's do it. All right, sweet. Hey, you seem like a productive person, but have you ever had those days where you needed a little more inspiration or motivation? Well, at HumbleStudent.co, we create beautifully minimal posters that feature quotes from the world's greatest innovators and leaders, like Steve Jobs, Malcolm X, and many more. All of our high-quality posters are made locally and use gallery-quality stretch canvas. Get 10% off your order right now by using the code RADIO10 and receive complimentary shipping when delivering to Australia and America. Visit humblestudent.co for your source of motivation and inspiration. Now, back to the episode. Five minutes later. All right, we've got our coffees now, Um, all fresh and hydrated and uh, ready to go for the next part. So you're well into your business now, um, you're testing out your fri- franchise model without calling it a franchise, you kind That's of just, right. yep, it's a stealth franchise, um, and it's working out, you're doing well, you're you're really passionate about it. What took it to the next stage? Like, you, you're basically just in Australia, and then you end up going to New Zealand, and well, did you go to any other countries, or?
1: <clears throat> uh, we actually signed agreements for Canada. Oh, okay. And for the UK. Right and we cooled off both of those and went to New Zealand instead but that was much later in the piece so you know we we were six practices then we decided okay this is this is scalable let's franchise it properly we went to adelaide we went to queensland after that we kept building our home base here in melbourne
2: mm.
1: it's interesting anyone who ever wants to scale their business nationally in australia the advice that i was given is most brands most imported brands will either go to adelaide first or they'll go to sydney first
0: is that is there a reason yeah
1: yeah they'll they'll go to sydney first because it's the biggest densest market it's where you know there's the the greatest concentration of trade and so you either go to sydney first and really establish yourself that makes sense and if you're in Sydney, then every other state will want you to, because they're the um, the leading uh, economic centre of Australia. But it's hard to but it's hard to hit Sydney. You know, it takes a lot of time, a lot of money, and there's more failures and successes. So the alternative is you go to Adelaide first, and Adelaide apparently has the best cross section, or the best sampling demographically and socioeconomically in its very small city representative of Australia. And if you succeed in Adelaide, there's a strong confidence you're going to succeed in the rest of Australia, but it's a really easy entry point. Hmm. And normally if you go to Adelaide first, you go to Sydney last. And that was true for us. So we went to Adelaide first and that's part opportunism and part strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, right people at the right time wanted to get involved and, and, uh, we liked the the theory around how we could expand from there. Um, and then we eventually kind of mapped all our way around Australia, including Tassie, including Perth. Uh, and we tried to get into Sydney and even to this day, Sydney is a really small market for us. It's just hard work.
2: Yeah.
1: We, we actually had a master franchisee ready to launch in Sydney. But that was in October 2008. We signed all the documents. Mm. And I'm not sure, mate, if you're too young to remember, but October 2008 was a horrible time.
0: 2008? Yep. The GFC? That was the beginning of the
1: GFC. So all of that deal fell over. The person who was going to go ahead with that got cold feet. So Mm. that's okay. So, um, So we did all of that. And then, yeah, New Zealand, Canada, and the UK all popped up on the radar. We ended up trademarking about... 25 or 30 countries just to protect ourselves Mm -hmm. and, um, and decided at a board level, we were far wiser to see if we could at least take it to New Zealand before we took it to the Northern hemisphere. Sure. And that was really good advice in the end. So we literally gave our money back to the Canadians and the English and said, you know what? I don't think we're ready. And, uh, went off and did New Zealand.
0: Cool. And how did that go for you? Yeah, it
1: was slow to begin with, even though New Zealand's often joked about as being the eighth state of Australia. <laughs> it, it really culturally is quite different. It's, yeah. it's a much smaller economy. Their healthcare system is radically different to Australia. In what way? Uh, they're a single insurance model. So they're, they've got what's called the um, ACC model, which is their accident compensation scheme. Um, it effectively provides, in the case of physio, pretty well universal cover, which means there's not a, not a strong uh, market for private price pointing. You can't necessarily provide heaps more value and charge significantly higher fees for the benefit patients are getting. It's a, it's a very um, you know egalitarian model. Most, most physios get the same price and therefore provide pretty well a standard service.
0: So your consumers kind of effectively become the insurance providers?
1: Now, the, the consumer is um, institutionalized to believe they shouldn't have to pay for physio. Right. It's provided, like in our Medicare system, right. it's provided as a, uh, an entitlement. And so the notion of paying extra on top of GAP hmm. for quality it's just, not, it's just not in their paradigm. So, you know, we've been able to get ahead and, and, and make a dint over there, but it was a little slow going initially, but that's okay. It's all part of the, it's all part of the great adventure.
0: Yeah, just slightly different. I mean, that's the mm. challenge of like, if you're going international, you kind of need to, the, the things are different. Like, yeah, you know, culture's different. Right. Um, I feel like New Zealand, they have a, a more, um, they have a closer tie to their, their native culture. So like, they're indigenous. you know, yeah, they're, they're very... indigenous, yeah, I feel like they have a very, you know, that's very interwoven into like, you know, their everyday life.
1: It probably is more so than we experience it here in Australia, mm. but, um, you know, we, we've done a lot of work with indigenous people in Australia, like yeah. a lot. Yeah. Um, and believe very strongly that healthcare is underutilized, underdelivered. To our First People, um, we've spent ten years investing into some Indigenous communities because they're dying way too young, and don't understand the medical model as we traditionally, or you know, um, in our Western world, seek to deliver it. So we have to adapt. We have to go back to first principles. We have to think about how do the Indigenous look at healthcare. I think it's I think it's a learning well worth um, the effort. Mm. But yeah, in New Zealand, um, they face some similar dynamics, you know, um, and so lots of, lots of cultural interfaces, no doubt.
0: So, um, I'd love to touch on that a little bit. Um, what do you, what did you kind of do in the past or what are you doing now, um, in in that regard for like indigenous people?
1: Yeah, we, we ran our own foundation. We called it the SOS Health Foundation. Cool. Um, and that stood for success or significance and the whole namesake of that initiative was really around uh, as physios but anybody who supported our cause really our patients and suppliers who got behind us it was do do you really just want to pursue personal success all the time or do you want to use the rewards of all your hard work for some long-lasting impact or significance in the lives of others Mm. and we made uh, some of the indigenous issues, some of our leading causes, not not exclusively, like we, we've done a lot of work in Southeast Asia, we've bought medical equipment for hospitals in Burma, we've helped with kids who are being trafficked in Thailand, we've done water sanitation projects in India, we've trained allied health staff in Parts of India and Indonesia, like you know, we've got a broader mandate than just indigenous. But we we invested ten years of our time, quite specifically in northeast Arnhem Land, up in Nulunboi, and also on Palm Island, which a lot of people don't know about, but it's a it's a place just off Townsville's coast, and it's an old penal settlement where Indigenous people for fifty years were rounded up all over Australia and sent to. Hmm. And today they're a kind of like a melting pot of more than 200 tribes, all with their own dialects and cultural idiosyncrasies. There's so much social dysfunction on that island. And, um, and so we actually set up a physio practice there wow. on a purely pro bono basis. We'd fly staff in. Sometimes just for a week or two weeks at a time, sometimes for as long as a year at a time on secondment. Yep, uh, we were doing health awareness programs, women's health, um, helping them with their diabetes. We were doing all sorts of school education on the island. Um, up in Nulunboy, which is which is um, you know in the Northern Territory, there we were actually flying in and flying out to all the communities. We went to about. Thirty homeland communities, which are only accessible by light aircraft, mm-hmm. um, and and effectively doing um, medical mission work up there.
0: That's incredible.
1: Yeah, it's been really worthwhile. Wow,
0: wow, really worthwhile. That that kind of ties into your original mission, right? <laughs> sure does. That, that your passion and of not like, by accident. No, no, exactly yeah, right. Yeah. But it's like it's come full circle, you know, yep. eventually.
1: Yeah, and you know, if we didn't have a franchise, we didn't have a. A network of physios, like we, you know, at our peak we were employing 700 people. We wouldn't have had a workforce from whom we could engage in some of this important work. Mm. And we certainly wouldn't have had the financial resources to be able to fund it. Uh, nor the credibility to be able to gain support from local government and other organizations. And so, you know, go back all that time to when God spoke to me up in the Northern Territory about go home, build a business and use the business as a means to an end. Yeah, we we saw some of that come to come to pass.
0: Well, that's really satisfying, isn't it?
1: It is. I mean, it's it is. And I feel like there's a lot more still to come, but Mm. it you know to anyone listening i'd just encourage you that you know there's all those dreams and those ideas and those plans mm. um you know they're not they're not futile keep investing into them
0: mm. yeah yeah and hindsight is 2020 right
1: yeah you can't claim like- credit for every everything that's happened as being part of your genius master plan but that's where if you have got a conviction around something and you and you believe strongly you know all, all roads almost intersect with that conviction yeah. and you've got your eyes wide open and your heart open to see the opportunities when they when they present yeah otherwise you're asleep at the wheel in life exactly. you know i i often say to people I, I support in their journeys on business the opportunity of a lifetime happens about once a day yeah like, literally. Wow. And, you know, if you're not looking for it, if you won't recognize it when it turns up, if you're, you know, got your head stuck in the sand, if you, you don't know what you want, then those opportunities are going to come and go. Mm. And you're going to sit back lamenting the fact that, ah, oh, life's so hard. It's too difficult. There's no, no, well, those opportunities are all around you.
0: Hmm yeah and what i mean by like hindsight is 2020 is like the the dots connect you can only see the dots connecting kind of like when you're at the end of the journey rather than like at the beginning of your journey or not the end like just further on into the journey yeah you can't see that um where it will go you can kind of just yeah take the first step
1: yeah agreed
0: brilliant um so, where are you at now with um, back in motion? Where's back in motion at? Like, what what's the current update on all that?
1: Yeah. So, well, the the real um, recent news is that last year, after a couple of years of pandemic interruption, mm-hmm. where businesses and families all over Australia and New Zealand were clearly doing it tough, mm. um, we in a in a healthcare business were disrupted, but not, um, disadvantaged. So, so we actually grew during that time. Wow. We that's launched, incredible. We launched new practices.
0: How, how is that possible when it's like a hands-on business? Well, we moved to,
1: we moved to digital health. So we right. were doing a lot of our consultations online. Yeah. Um, people were working from home, not at good ergonomic workstations. Right. and So they were experiencing more pain and discomfort that caused greater demand you know, just because uh, state and state premiers shut down your access to services doesn't mean people's health and well-being, you know, uh, obliges. Mm. So, you know, we were having people who were in, in these four reasons you could leave home, one of them was to exercise for an hour or two a day mm. and being deconditioned and un, unprepared for snapping into these exercise routines, but them just wanting to get out of the house. We were seeing people overtrain and get injured.
0: Mm.
1: So for a lot of reasons, um, physios became busier than ever.
0: Fascinating. But we
1: had to adapt. We had to think differently. We had to change the way we operated our business. Yeah. But all of that just grew uh, some interest. And, and we've had this over the years, but we, we, we had a few unsolicited offers to buy the Back in Motion Health Group, which, you know, from time to time you contemplate, would we, if so, what would that look like? What would our franchisees think? How could they participate in that? Um, We got one really good offer last year, and uh, such that I thought I'd better present that one to the board and let them consider it. And for a lot of reasons, we would never have taken that offer, but what it did do, it it got our... it got ourselves thinking. Hmm. We got ourselves thinking, well, if these people are coming to us and we're not even advertising, we're for sale, I wonder what sort of interest or suitable partner would we find if we did go to market. Mm-hmm. And we were open-minded. We, we were thinking, well, we could merge with another business. We could sell to them. We could buy them. We could do any number of things, but what we wanted to do was grow. We wanted to integrate more services. We wanted to have greater impact. And so we commissioned PwC to run a covert um, operation behind the curtain and just very, um, you know, very delicately, very uh, disgrace- d- discretionately just put ourselves in front of potential partners. And uh, within about three months, we had over 93 interested op- options.
0: Yeah, for people who don't know, is that like a lot of... That's a lot. Like is I, that a lot I, for business? I
1: thought, you know, if we got five to 10, this would be a worthwhile exercise. 90 too many. It's actually too many. It yeah. took me six months to just work through them all. Yeah. Um, but that was everything from pub- public and private hospitals, GP groups... Uh, other competitors who are running similar allied health style businesses, to suppliers, to private health insurers, to companies in Germany and other parts of Europe who wanted to get into the Australian market. I mean, it it was pretty wild. So we spent most of uh, last year weighing up all those options, narrowing our choices, Mm -hmm. getting 90 to 20 and 20 to three, and then dating the three pretty seriously to contemplate who who might we do something with and in the end we uh, we actually uh, consummated all that in October last year so we joined with another organization who was doing physiotherapy optometry podiatry they had a national footprint as well they were publicly listed so we've joined with them and so now two are on the ASX and that's an awesome development. It, it, it enabled all of our franchisees to either uh, roll into the new model, uh, you know, with, with an ongoing future of equity and, and growth opportunity, or if they wish, take some money off the table. And for me personally, it meant our family could realise something from the 20 years of hard work. Mm. And uh, so, you know, my role is now just a strategic advisor to that parent company, and I don't have any day-to-day operational responsibilities, which is awesome, Uh, which frees me up to do more of that mission work and philanthropy and some other things. So you talk about full circle, I feel like that's a massive development in our story. Sure. Um, Still super passionate to see the brand of Back in Motion and all of the other services that we're now in this kind of house of brands succeed, um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm released to do some other things.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Um, we'll get into, um, I actually want to ask you like what a day in the life of Jason is a little bit later. Um, but I'm just curious. Uh, so was it a merger that you had with that company that is now the parent or is it like they just buy the company?
1: It's, It's complicated because it's a franchise system. We're not one single entity, right? We actually had over 70 companies or family trusts or unit trusts that made up the corporate structure of Back in Motion. Right. So that's a lot to get your head around. Yeah. Um, In effect, the way we have structured it is we have defranchised the Back in Motion Health Group. So there are no franchises anymore. Hmm. All of the businesses have been what we call corporatised. So they've been put all into one company. Mm And then in that company, there are class A and class B shares. And this, you know, just keeping it simple, class A shares are what you would think of in very traditional terms as being full ownership. And class B shares are restricted or limited rights of mm-hmm. ownership mm-hmm. and so what we've done is we have um, given all of the franchisees class B shares in their local practices based on how much or how little they wanted mm-hmm. and the balance in cash right and so they still earn profits out of their business the harder they work the better they earn um, so that has got the spirit of a franchise but technically and legally is very much a, uh, a different model now but you know the beautiful thing is unless I told you you wouldn't know <clears throat> yeah so the brand looks the same the practices still operate as they always did the patient care and systems are uninterrupted the technology flows through you know little mrs jones and johnny boy who comes in for treatment unless we had a article in the afr or made made a point of mentioning it to them mm. they, they would it, it all happens you know behind the scenes
0: it's still like um, same everything people, still works smoothly same
1: people same client experience yeah. and so it really just is in the corporate structuring that's changed sure, sure which is exactly part of the appeal you know why would you want to disrupt a good thing
0: Exactly, yeah and
1: so if we were going to partner with someone or list on the ASX or change our corporate model it had to happen behind the scenes in a way that really didn't interrupt front you know the the front uh experience
0: cool cool um so is it's now officially sold it's been like sold off to the to them as the
1: well it's all under that company which is listed on the asx yeah but but back in motion i mean this is this is overly technical now but it's a wholly owned subsidiary yeah of the listed company or it's a subsidiary I should say of the listed company, mm. but not wholly owned. Right. It's, it's owned still in part by all of the practitioners that make up the network.
0: So that, that now, um, that whole corporation that owns the back emotion motion business, mm-hmm. um, were they just like the highest bidder, um, out of the 90 applicants that you got the no, buyers I
1: mean, in or fact, not and, really. And, and, and that's the curious bit. And, You know, to get 70 people, all of my franchisees, all to agree or want the same thing is a a tall ask. And especially when my recommendation to them all was that we were going with a purchaser or a partner that wasn't the highest bidder. Right. So um, obviously they were an attractive bidder. But they, but their money. We could have got more money in other deals. What they brought to the table were far more um, appealing benefits in terms of the alignment of services, the cultural values, mm. the the strategy, the future potential that we could achieve together. Mm. And so sometimes, you know, you just have to be you've got to play the long game on all that stuff. Mm. And. Uh, I think um, we, we chose well in that this is the better fit
0: can I ask how much they actually bought back motion for or is that yeah, private so,
1: no no it's it's in the public domain because it's an ASX listed company you could look it up you could google it right now so um, the initial uh, payment was around 76 million then there was another um, I'm call it 40 or 50 million in deferred payments so collectively you know that's the sort of price tag is that you mean like
0: is that vested like Uh, over a certain period of time yeah over a couple of years okay cool yeah wow so what's that all up like 100 million
1: 120 wow if if everybody achieves all of their targets over the two or three years that follow um and you know they experience the optimized price in the final assessment, yeah, yep. it'd be about 120.
0: Wow. That's absolutely insane. You probably didn't imagine that when you started at 23 in your garage. No,
1: nah, no, nah, that was never really an expectation <laughs> at all. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's incredible.
1: Even going into the process, you know, we we were very modest in our expectations. It was more around discovering good people to keep working with to achieve growth and impact that was the objective. Mm. Um, but you know, I think again in the world of, um, commerce and corporate opportunities, it's, it's amazing. Good things are worth a lot of money.
0: Mm. Yeah. Um, well to kind of bring things into like the here and now mm. after all this, what is, um, a day in the life of Jason right now? So, You've sold your business, you're doing other things, like you wake up in the morning. I'm guessing you're not as busy as you used to be. What what are you doing now?
1: Well, we're a family of four kids, so they're all still at school. Um, So actually, I'm always busy. There's always something to do, even if it's just on the home front. But I think the way I would describe it is uh, I'm as busy as I've always been because I occupy myself, but without the intensity of pressure without the strain, without that relentless obligation on me like I once had when I was running the business. Mm -hmm. So now I can be a little more diverse and a little bit more creative and a little bit more variable in the things I give my time to. So a typical day for me is not typical. That is literally from one day to the next, it looks different. But if I looked at a typical week, I would say my week is made up of a couple of board meetings where I'm involved in different organisations, contributing to their strategies and their interests. So not things I've initiated, just championing other people's causes. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a strategic advisory role still to back in motion, which is a couple of days a week. Um, And then I will fill the rest of my time with, I do a fair bit of mentoring and coaching of individuals I do a fair bit of investing, um, you know, which from one week to the next kind of can can occupy a reasonable amount of time.
0: Can I ask what you invest in?
1: Oh, uh, a, a pretty diversified portfolio, to be honest. Like it's a pr- pretty conservative spread. It's interesting, actually, as as I move from being a business operator to become an investor. It's a very different skill set. So, yeah, I feel like I'm almost starting from scratch hmm. in terms of learning how to do that well and and the risk appetite that i've applied in business doesn't serve me always as well in investing hmm. and so i feel like i've got a lot to still get my head around in that space so for now it's a, it's a pretty um pretty balanced portfolio um, is this
0: like ASX stocks or are you investing in like other businesses No oh, we're like doing some startups? of our own
1: property developments so oh, direct cool. property. property we're doing yeah. a fair few equities we're we're, we're looking at um uh, Quite a range of opportunities that I have some level of control around, and others that you know you, you're essentially putting it in the hands of um, fund managers. Right. Yeah. Right. Not That'd getting be- not getting quite as. Um, Engaged in the world of crypto and blockchain, <laughs> as I know you are. Uh, so. Bitcoin's
0: very low right now. I <laughs> highly recommend—not financial <laughs> advice—highly recommend getting on Bitcoin yeah, though. Like, yeah. right, yeah. I, do you um do you invest in any other like small businesses? Like, yeah. have you seen some maybe another uh, physio who's like starting their business? Like, oh, I'm going to
1: invest in your some other entrepreneurial ventures. So, no to the former, yes to the latter. Okay. So, investing like we own uh, quite a f- quite a few. Um, small businesses have yep. our interests in quite a few small businesses, mostly yep. in the tech space or businesses that service healthcare um, a little bit uh, more broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't invest into physiotherapy practices that compete. Or don't align with my interests. Sorry, yeah, no, that's not. I I meant
0: more like uh, someone that you could see yourself in, like, oh, this person is like, you know, kind of where I was when I was that age. Um, You know, they're starting a business. So, like. So the angel
1: investment kind of model. Right, yeah. Yeah, oh, look, we've done a little bit of that. Um, For the most part, I find the best, the better gift I can give them. Uh, is more the coaching and the mentoring if if there's a need for some funding, then we'd certainly consider that. but I find that changes the relationship. Of course, yeah um, because once you become an investor, you have a different level of accountability and governance, and uh, if I can more be an advisor without that bias, I think I can be a a little bit more authentic with them. Mm. Um, but yeah, so we, we, do a range of those sorts of things. So in a given week, I've got a fairly diverse spread. I do a little bit of speaking, a little bit of writing, um, play tennis, uh, enjoy, enjoy being much more engaged in the family life. Um, do a little bit of speaking at church and my wife and I have lots of interests in overseas mission projects. So put all that together and it's still a full agenda. Brilliant. It's still a full program.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, uh, for the listeners now, uh, what do you, what do you kind of have that I could like put in the link? Like, what do you want to kind of plug and shout out that you want people to know about? Um, sorry, that I can, I can put a link in the description so
1: people can visit it. If you have anything at all, like a book or like a course that you want people to have Um, a look at the easiest place to go, which is the front door to all resources and, Um, avenues really is the website jasontsmith.com.au. Yep. So if people want to go there, you'll see I've written a few books, I've got a few, I've got a YouTube channel with some leadership insights. I run workshops and courses um, as part of the iceberg Leadership Institute. Um, You know, if you're really looking for a way to connect with me and, uh, and, and learn what it is I'm doing from one day to the next. That's the easiest portal.
0: So kind of to wrap things up, uh, what would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs? Maybe they're 23 or whatever age they're starting their business. You can give a couple of tips, but what would be like maybe the number one thing that you could tell in, uh, young entrepreneurs from your experience?
1: I think, um, entrepreneurship is, is spoken about a lot and, often by people who aren't one, who haven't lived it, who don't take risks. And and I would just very carefully quieten some of the noise around entrepreneurship and get you to focus on really what I call the three C's. So this is what I think of when, when I consider entrepreneurship. Number one, it's conviction. So it's not about just finding a need in the market and filling it. It's not about just being... Um, you know, exploitive of an opportunity, I think the real core of an entrepreneur is you have a conviction, a compulsion, a calling. You know, you really are passionate about doing something because that puts fuel in the tank when you face inevitable obstacles. So number one is conviction. Number two is creativity. Uh, at the end of the day, you have to then think differently to yeah. everybody else. You, you have to look around corners, imagine a future, don't try and just reinvent the wheel. Try to break the mold, disrupt. Okay, all of that's good, um, almost cliche language. So, so, But foster your creativity. It's a learnable skill like anything else. Mm. The more you do it, the better you become. So build the discipline uh, and practice and rehearse creativity. So that's the second one. So conviction, creativity. Third one would be courage. And that's the least favorite of, of the three because... Courage requires you to, yeah, take risks, take the bruises. First guy through the door, always get shot. Um, you know, it, there's going to be some hard times in the journey, some low ebb's. You've heard of some of mine. There'll be more to come, I'm sure of it. But you got to keep going. So conviction, creativity, courage—they're the—they're the three C's of entrepreneurism. Everything else will follow. Don't don't worry about the money. Don't worry about. You know whether whether you you look as sophisticated and as and as clever as everybody else. I think you know sometimes the limitations in in our lives are the very things that enable us to live with conviction, creativity, and courage. So don't lament that, mm. um, <clears throat> and enjoy the journey. Embrace it.
0: Brilliant! I think that's really good advice for anyone starting any kind of business. Honestly, that's just really solid. Well. I think that wraps up the entire first episode of Humble Radio. Thank you so much for coming on, Jason. It's been a pleasure.
1: Yeah, you're most welcome. This is like Jerry Seinfeld. Instead of coffee in cars, it's um, thick shakes in cars.
0: Entrepreneurs with Hungry Jack's uh, (laughs) iced lattes. Okay, anyways,
2: we'll see you next time for the next episode. Thanks again, Jason. My pleasure. All right, see you guys.